Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will be, I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their heir. God said further to Abraham, now as for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. And it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you and every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who was born in your house or who was bought with money from a, any foreigner who is not of your descendants a servant who is born in your house or bought is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant but an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin that person shall be cut off from his people he has broken my covenant then god said to abraham as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be the mother, be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Then Abram, Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to, in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, no. Oh, but God said, no, but Sarah, Sarah will be your wife, will bear you a son and you will call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and I will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. When he finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. And Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all the servants who were born in his house, and all who were brought, bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's household, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the very same day. And God said, as God had said to him. Now Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. In the very same day, Abraham had, was circumcised and Ishmael, his son. All the men of his household who were born in his house or bought with his money 
or bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Please be seated. Brothers and sisters, we come now to the 17th chapter of the book of Genesis. And as was said before, uh, yet another difficult chapter. This chapter has caused much confusion and much division among the Reformed and has greatly impacted our understanding of covenant theology. You may have heard that saying before. As we journey through this chapter for the next few weeks, I must confess that uh, as we will be treading through these next few chapters, we will be treading through deep and often difficult waters. That's a a warning for us. We will often come across very technical language. Some of the concepts that we will be considering over the next few weeks uh, may be new for some of you. Uh, For others, it may be a reminder. And still for others, it may be just clarification. Whatever the case may be, I would like to encourage you that if you have trusted in Christ, then you are the people of God. Let me just pause with that. Therefore, it is imperative that you understand God's plan of redemption from creation to consummation or from creation, uh, Genesis, to consummation, Revelation. It is important that you know. Uh, As we come to the end of our study today, one of our applications will be this. Simply that you know. We will not seek to try to find a deeper and greater application other than this you must know because you are the people of God. So though you may be learning, uh, though what you may be learning over the next few weeks, uh, just like what we've been learning from Christology, may be at times difficult. It may be at times hard to understand. It is necessary for you as the people of God to understand so that you might So that you might better be able to explain the plan of redemption that God has revealed to us in his scripture. And also, uh, as a byproduct, be a better witness of the gospel. So when you understand these things, you will uh, better understand the plan of God in his redemptive plan. And you will also be a better witness to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, with all that said, before we journey into the 17th chapter, let's briefly... remind ourselves of what where we've been thus far now this first point we're going to run pretty quickly through it because we've learned all these things i think already so our first point number one is a journey backward these are things that you know already maybe with some points that that need to be highlighted once again in the 12th chapter the lord god here's a word initiated initiated a covenant with abraham or abram by calling and commanding 75-year-old Abram to leave his country and to leave his kindred. We remember this. He calls Abram with a promise that's found in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Let's turn there. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord God, now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives, and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. 
and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God makes these promises to Abraham or Abram. Uh, I'm going to be saying Abram until we finally get to Abraham. And that's going to be hard for me to transition because all this time I've learned to say Abram. And now I'm going to have to transition to saying Abraham. Uh, So be patient with me. So God makes these promises to Abram at the time. And he makes a, a number of I will statements as Abram is commanded to leave country and house contained within this initiation of God's covenant with Abram was a promise of the gospel contained within this initiated covenant is a promise of the gospel, meaning that God himself revealed the gospel to Abram when he called Abram out of his country and out from his house. Now, you should be asking, in the first three verses that we read from chapter 12, where is a gospel promise? Where's a gospel promise in what we've just read? Was there any mention of the name of Jesus? No. Was there any mention of of Christ uh, being sacrificed on a cross? No. So then, where is a gospel promise in the verses that we've just read? It's contained within these three verses, but specifically and especially in verse 3. Look at verse 3. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In you, that is, in your seed. In your seed, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. The Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, infallibly comments on this verse in Galatians chapter 3. It would be good if we turn there. Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to be reading a a portion from there. Galatians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul commenting on Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Especially verse 3. He says, Galatians 3, 6. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him or accredited to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of of faith who are sons of Abraham. He goes on to say, The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, what does it say? Preached the gospel to Abraham, saying how? Now, here's what Paul's saying. God preached the gospel to Abraham, and we are saying, where's the gospel promise? And Paul answers that question for us, saying, all nations will be blessed in you. So Paul is telling us, if you're looking for the gospel promise that God preached to Abraham, it's found in Genesis chapter 3 or 12, verse 3. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. In you, all the, the nations will be blessed. That is in your seed. All the nations will be blessed. When God called or commanded Abram to leave country and kindred, he graciously called Abram to faith as well. Does that make sense? So God was not just calling Abram to leave your house, to leave your country. God was also at the same time calling Abram to place his faith in that promised seed. And and listen to this. God not only uh, called Abram to believe, God gave Abram faith to believe. As our confession says, God requires faith and also gives the faith that he requires. The Lord God showed 
undeserved favor. God showed grace to Abram, salvific grace, preaching the gospel to him, calling him to faith, and then giving him faith to believe. Now, I think it is important for us to understand what was revealed to Abraham or to Abram. The scriptures have declared that the gospel was revealed to Abram. Uh, Genesis 12, 3, in you all the nations will be blessed. We're saying that there's a gospel promise revealed, contained within that verse. When Abram heard this, what did he believe then? What promise did Abram believe when he heard the call from God? How was he saved? Let me ask you this question. What did Shem, Noah, Seth, and Adam believe that caused them to be saved and to have a right standing before God? What did they believe? They believed the gospel. What gospel? Let's go to Genesis chapter 3. What gospel were they believing? Genesis 3 and verse 15. We should know this verse if you've been in this church for any amount of time. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Seed is the operative word. He, the seed, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise him, the seed, on his heel. This promise here in Genesis 3.15 is known as the promised covenant of grace. This promise here in Genesis 3.15 is the promised, meaning future, covenant of grace. This covenant of grace was promised in the Garden of Eden when man broke the covenant of works with God. God established a covenant with Adam. We'll get to that in a moment. Adam broke that covenant. Man fell. We all fell as a result of Adam's fall. But God made a promise that one would come, a seed would come, and he would restore what Adam lost in the garden. He would reverse the curse, if, if you will, that Adam caused all men to fall into. When Adam sinned against God, he failed to keep the requirements of the covenant imposed upon him by God. But when men fell, God graciously made a promise that a seed would come and destroy the works of Satan. The seed would, again, reverse the curse, the effects of, 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 of the curse, which are sin and death. And he would restore the glory that man lost in his rebellion. Now, there is a promise that God gives to Adam. That God gives to all men, really. That, that men could be saved through believing in this promised seed to come. Adam believed this promise. And Adam lived for nearly 1,000 years. And what did uh, Adam preach for 1,000 years? He preached the gospel. Adam preached that there would come a seed who would destroy what he or reverse what he caused all men to fall into. That is sin. And all who had ears to hear believed that gospel. That is his son, Seth. That is his great, great, great. I don't know how many greats. Grandson, Noah. That was Shem. And now that gospel was being revealed and preached to Abram. God was calling Abram out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He was calling him out of an idolatrous life and into a life of true worship to the one true God. Contained within God's initial call of Abram was a revelation of the promise 
of the covenant of grace. God was revealing to Abram the covenant of grace. He was showing him uh, the promise, and Abram believed in that promise. Amen. And Abram was saved. Abram then worshiped God. He set up altars to offer sacrifices to the Lord, acknowledging that there is no remission of sin, no forgiveness of sin without sacrifice. And yet Abram, the true believer that he was, often displayed poor judgment in his faith. Abram was a man who often wrestled with his faith, as all true believers from time to time do. Abram was living as a foreigner in the land that was promised to him and to his descendants. And then famine struck the land. Rather than trusting in the promise of God that God would provide for Abram, would provide for his family, Abram and his wife Sarai and their traveling companions, they traveled down, as we said before, to Egypt, seeking refuge. Egypt, as we would, uh, as we've said in times past, would become representative of the world. Egypt would become representative of sin. Before entering Egypt, Abram encourages his wife to lie for him, to lie on his behalf. He lied on his own behalf, and he was found out by the pagan king of Egypt, rebuked even, and sent out of Egypt, along with all of the possessions that he acquired while he was in Egypt. Escaping with his life and with many possessions, Abram and his family travel back up to the promised land. And as they are traveling back up, he is reminded of the promises of God. And he is once again strengthened in his trust in those promises. He and his nephew Lot, they separate. You remember this? And when they do, Lot takes the plentiful land while Abram is reminded by God that all of the land has been given to him. Turn to Genesis chapter 13. When God reveals himself to Abram again, he makes reminders, if you will, of promises that God has already made. And yet he is then expanding upon those promises. So God is reminding Abram of promises he's made. And then he's expanding or further revealing the contents of that promise. Genesis thirteen fourteen. The Lord said, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. So that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land throughout its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. When God comes to Abram, does he promise something new, per se? Is, is he giving Abram a brand new promise? Or was he reminding Abram of something that he's already promised and now further revealing or further expanding upon? The latter is true. Notice also what God promised was in relationship to a physical promise. So God is promising something. And it's a physical promise, This meaning this. God has promised actual physical descendants to come from Abraham. Right? When we read this, we must not say he's just talking about spiritual things. Spiritual things are contained, and ultimately uh, they are pointing to spiritual things. But God is actually pointing to descendants of Abram that will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. How is that possible? 
we will, Lord willing, get there. God was actually promising a land to Abram. Not, not just a spiritual land that we on this side point to and say God was, was pointing him toward ultimately a heavenly kingdom. Yes. But God was also promising him a physical land. These promises had an immediate physical application. And yet, here's a word for you. They were typological in that they pointed to ultimately a spiritual reality. But we must not jump to the spiritual reality and overlook the physical reality that is present as well. Amen. We shall discuss this more. From there, the Lord God gave Abram a, a great victory as he rescued his, not, uh, his, his nephew Lot from powerful nations. Followed by Abram's encounter with Melchizedek, the, key, the priest and king of Salem. Then in chapter 15, the Lord comes to Abram and formally establishes his covenant with Abram in a covenant ceremony. And God reiterated once again the promises that he's made and also expands on those promises that had previously been made through a formal covenant. Let's go to chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. We shall see this kind of, same kind of introduction when God formalizes his covenant with Abram. Uh, especially when we move on to chapter 17. God is the ruler. Abram is the subject. Abram is the one who must submit to the ruler, right? Uh, I haven't said this before, but in ancient times, there was something known as a vassal suzerain treaty. The ruler king was the vassal. The vassal who was the ruler king would impose a treaty or covenant on the lesser subject who was the suzerain. And the suzerain must submit to the vassal. Why? Because the vassal is the powerful one. The suzerain must submit to the rulership of the vassal. And this is what is being mirrored here in these chapters. The Lord lovingly, kindly declares that he is Abram's protector or that he is the ruler. Someone who protects you is someone who was over you. Abram was being told by God, I am your God. I, I have provided for you. I protect you. I am your provider, right? Abram still had no children, though. He had yet to receive this promised child that God had promised him. Not only that, but the land of promise was not his. It belonged to someone else. He was a foreigner in the land of promise. And he complains to God. The God you've given me, no child. The heir of my house will be Eleazar, my servant. Uh, something interesting about that is he says, the one who will inherit inherit all of my goods will, will be one who is not my own son. Meaning Abram still believed that there was an inheritance that God would give him. It just wouldn't go to someone from his own body. So Abram was still believed. Verse 4 of chapter 15. God says in response, This man will not be your heir. What one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. He took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you were able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Are you with me? Are we all together? Okay. The Lord God has once again reiterated and expanded upon a previous promise. When God says, look up to the stars, you are going to have as many children or descendants as those stars that you see in the sky. Is that a new promise? Is that a new promise? No. 
It's not a new promise. It's a promise that God has already made. God has said, you will be a great nation. Two, your descendants will be as numerous as the dust, numerous as the dust of the earth. Two, now, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars of the sky. God is saying the same exact thing in different ways. Abram believed the Lord. Not the first time he believes the Lord, but it is a description of his ongoing and developing faith. But God was not done with his covenant promises. Verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. Do you see that, that, uh, that model again? God is saying, I'm the Lord. I'm the ruler. I brought you out. I'm going to give you this land. Right? He's, he's declaring his rulership over Abram. God declares that as a result of his rulership, he's going to impose a covenant on Abram. He's going to give them this land. We're going to get to that imposing covenant. He's going to give Abram this land. And Abram says, confirm it with me. How will I know? So then God gives Abram instructions for a formal covenant. The ceremony includes animals that serve, that were severed in two. And the Lord God himself passes through the severed pieces, declaring on earth that, that he himself, if he fails to keep his part of the covenant, he shall be cut off just like those animals or cut down like those animals. Now, it's important for us to note, again, at this point, as we are in chapter 15, are we all looking at chapter 15? Okay. From chapter 12 all the way to chapter 15. It appears as though God is the only one who is promising to do something in this covenant. Now, in a covenant, there are two sides, which we're going to get to. There are two sides. One must do something and the other must do something. Up until now, up until this 15th chapter, it appears as though it is only God who is making promises. It appears as though it is only God who is making commitments that, that Abram must only receive all that is God, all that is promised by God by faith. Are you with me? You should go back and read how many I wills that God is saying he will do. Therefore, this has caused many, especially our Pado Baptist brothers, to believe that this covenant that God is making with Abraham is one of pure grace. I'm slowing down on purpose now. They take, our Pado baptist brothers, they take this understanding further in their belief that this covenant that God made with Abram is the covenant of grace. Is this covenant that God was developing, and I say that word intentionally, developing, only a one-sided covenant of grace? We shall answer that in just a moment. Ten years pass, and still Abram is without a child. His wife sinfully suggests that Abram take her servant, Hagar, in order to bring about the promises of God. Moses uses the language of Eden, saying, Abram listened to the voice of his wife, Sarai. Just as Adam listened to the voice of his wife, Eve, rather than listening to the voice of God and fell, so Abram listened to the voice of his wife, Sarai, and disobeyed God by taking an alternative route the promises of God. Let me ask you a question. When Adam partook of the forbidden fruit, did he gain wisdom that was promised 
in eating of the forbidden fruit? Did he gain the wisdom that he was looking for? What was the promise? You could be like God, right? That was a promise, right? Did he gain it? He didn't. Well, then why did God say the man has now become like one of us? He got it. But how did he achieve it? Through sinful means. And what did he fail to earn? The life promised through obedience. Right? When Abram went in with Hagar, did he produce a child? Yeah, he did. Was he the promised child? No, he wasn't. And how was he accomplished? Through sinful means. This is the the pattern of man. Always trying to leap over what God has promised in order to reach what their hearts desire rather than in a sinful in a sinful manner, rather than achieving it through the manner which God has commanded us to achieve it. Abram did become a father, but accomplished this through disobedience and through disbelief in the promises of God. And he also broke the marriage covenant between him and his wife. Hagar was redeemed by God who revealed God, who revealed himself to her as the God who sees. She gave birth to a son, Ishmael. And though he will not be the promised child, he will nonetheless become great in his own right. Uh, Genesis chapter 17 says that from him will come 12 princes. He will become in himself a great nation. Now, this is a recap of all that we have learned thus far. And we need to carry all of this with us as we journey into the chapter that is before us today, chapter 17. Let's go to it now. Chapter 17. Our second point is further expansion on the covenant of circumcision. Further expansion upon the covenant of circumcision. When Abram was first called by God, he was 75 years old. When Abram chose a a different route other than the route that God had ordained for him and went in to Hagar, his wife's maid. Abram was 86 years old. Now, when we come to this 17th chapter, the Bible tells us in the first verse that Abram is 99 years old. Therefore, 13 years have passed from chapter 16 and chapter 17, which again uh, brings us back to the point that we have made before, that when we read these verses and these chapters, we must not assume, assume that what we are reading is taking place the very next day. Thirteen years later, chapter 17. And there are a few things that will immediately stand out to us as we read this chapter. The first is the declaration of divine authority that God makes before Abraham. What does he say? I am God Almighty. Remember that pattern of vassal and suzerain? He's, he's following that pattern again, or that pattern is following God. He's declaring he's the ruler. He's preparing to impose uh, certain requirements, commandments on the lesser subject. But he's doing so first by saying, I'm the ruler. Uh, just like fathers in the house, when you tell your children to do something, or mothers too sometimes. What is your... Uh, What is your reasoning? How are you able to command? Because you are the ruler of the house. So God is saying, I'm the ruler. I'm the commander. Be prepared to receive these commandments. Now, as he gives these requirements, these commandments, he is further expanding upon promises again. Now, 
I want you to notice there's a parallel. There's a strong parallel between what we've read in chapter 12 and what we've read and what we're reading now in chapter 17. There's parallels there. The passages are set up in a very uh, similar way. There's a, a similar flow, similar wording. Though the wording is not exactly the same, the flow and the pattern is the same. How so? In the 12th chapter, God said to Abram, Go, he's, a command, he's commanding him, go from your country, and I will make you into a great nation. Go, the command, and here's the blessing. I will make you into a great nation. Now in chapter 17, God says to Abram, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant with you. See the similarity there? Obviously not the same words, but the same basic formula is being used. The idea of I am, therefore you must obey. It's present, although the words have changed. So that's that's the pattern there. I am the ruler, therefore you must. That makes sense? Are we all together? I'm going to keep saying that as we go into the second point, because there's a lot there. God is reiterating his promise to Abram. And from here, God begins to repeat those promises that have previously been made. And while he does so, he expands again on them just a little bit. God promises Abram that he will multiply Abram exceedingly. New promise, or has he already said that? In the exact same way? No, differently, but same kind of promise. And that he would be the father of a multitude of nations. God then does something new. But it's something that God has already ordained for Abram. He changes his name. God changes his name from Abram to Abraham. That is exalted father, Abram, to father of multitudes, Abraham. God further elaborates on this covenant promise in verses 6 through 8. God promises that uh, Abraham would be fruitful. He would bless him. Has God already promised that he would bless him? Yeah. That kings would come from him. Now, that's a further expansion. That kings would come from Abraham, which tells us that it was always within the plan of God for Israel to have a king. It was always the plan of God. The promise of kingly rulers would be declared by Jacob upon his son. Anybody know the name? Which son? Judah. And from Judah would come kings, would become the the nation of Judah, right? God once again reiterates the promise that the land would be given to Abram. He's already promised that. And that this would be an everlasting covenant. We'll get to that word everlasting probably the next time. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to say this again. Are these new promises? No. These are promises that have already been made. Which is why we cannot believe that the 15th chapter and the 17th chapter are two separate covenants. Now, you may be sitting here and saying, who would believe that? You would be surprised. (coughs) But specifically, our Pado Baptist brothers believe that there are two separate covenants that are happening here. One covenant in chapter 15 and one covenant in chapter 17. But this is one covenant that is progressively being revealed to Abraham. Now, in the previous point, we asked, was the covenant made with Abraham purely a one-sided covenant of grace, wherein no work was required of Abraham? Is this a covenant of grace? You may be asking, what's a covenant of grace? I'll get to that in a moment. But grace is simply this. You don't need to do anything. Work is you need to do something. Is this a covenant of no work or is this a covenant of work? The answer to that question 
It's not something you need to ponder about because the scriptures answer it for you. Right? And the scriptures answer in the negative. This is not a one-sided covenant of grace where you don't, where Abraham doesn't need to do anything. It is a covenant of work. God declares that he is God Almighty. So then what's the, where's the commands? If it's not grace where Abraham doesn't have to do anything, because remember, there are a lot of I wills in this uh, in this covenant. Then where are the you must? Go to verse one. What does God command him? Walk before me. And be blameless. Is that a command? Yes. Is that a requirement of Abraham? Yes. Or, Or is it a suggestion? It's a command. The passage emphasizes some elements of this covenant that have already been present, but were just not as explicit before. In this particular passage, God makes it clear that Abram must perform certain duties in order to keep this covenant. God is establishing this covenant. Can this covenant be broken? He's made a lot of promises. Can the covenant be broken? Can Abram do something, Abraham do something to break this covenant? Didn't God walk through the way of blood? Didn't he suffer the, the animals and say, I will do this. I promise I will do this. Yes, he did. But is the covenant yet complete? No, it's not. We have only seen God's part. Up to this point in the narrative, the emphasis has only been on what God will do. And I say the emphasis has been only on what God will do because although Abram is is not without work, he must work, his work has not really been emphasized yet until now. Are you with me? What's the first thing God commanded Abram to do? What's the first thing? Huh? To leave. Leave your house. Leave your country. Go to a land I will show you. Did Abram obey? Yes, he did. If Abram would, didn't obey, then he wouldn't have been blessed. Abram has already from the very get-go, from the very beginning. He has been given commands that he must obey. He's been given things that he must, that he is required to do in order to keep his side of the covenant. God says, walk before me and be blameless. God requires of Abraham a certain measure of righteousness and obedience that can be publicly seen. It refers to this blameless. It refers to a, an open and viewable living. One that is on display, says John Gill. He was commanded to be blameless. And we must not read over this word blameless thinking that God is commanding Abraham to be perfect because no man is perfect, right? He's not commanding Abraham to be perfect all the way down to the depths of his soul. But he's described, uh, this blamelessness as des- is described as a blamelessness, that of Job. Job was blameless in his, uh, in his time. What does that mean? He was viewed by the unseeing world as being a right-standing, upstanding, righteous man. Abraham must live that kind of way. Now, let me pause for a second. I want you, if you're taking note, make a, a circle around this note. Why must he be blameless to the onlooking world? There's a point to that. This is what God was requiring from him, from him, Abraham, that he live before God as a righteous man, obeying the moral law, that which was written on her heart, on his heart, and also enacting the act of circumcision 
to distinguish him and his people from other nations. Brothers and sisters, this was not so that Abraham could be saved. Did you get that? God was not commanding this of Abraham so that Abraham could be saved. If God was commanding this of Abraham so that Abraham could be saved, then it would be a covenant of grace. No, it it would still be a covenant of works, actually. Because there is a command that Abraham must do in order to be saved. There would be grace involved in it, but there is not. Abram was already saved. Abram believed the Lord. And it was declared to him as righteous. Paul says, when did righteousness come? Before circumcision or after circumcision? Before circumcision. Which means that salvation is by faith and not by work. This was so that Abram could receive what? Could receive what then? The physical blessings that God had promised in the covenant. Not so that Abram could be saved. This covenant, uh, Abram's side, was so that he could be blessed. So that he could, as was said, inherit the land that God was promising him, and so on. It was for the physical blessing that God was promising Abraham. There is no salvation offered in this covenant that God made with Abraham. These promises were of physical realities. These are requirements that God is imposing on Abraham, as the ESV says, so that. Do this so that. God said that you must live in this way so that he would make his covenant with him. God is saying, you do this so that what I have promised will come to pass. This is a requirement, but again, not a new idea. Remember, we said at the beginning that chapters 17 and chapter 12 have a strong parallel. There, God commands Abram to leave his country and his kindred. And from the start, God's promises to Abraham depended on a certain measure of obedience on the part of Abraham in obeying the commands of God. Again, if Abraham had not left this country, he would not have been blessed. The idea that Abraham has duties that he must keep in order to keep his side of the covenant is further explained in this chapter by God's command and instructions concerning circumcision. This is verses 9 through 14. And we're going to do our own kind of sermon on this in the future. In Acts chapter 6, Stephen calls this, full of the Holy Spirit, he calls this the covenant of circumcision. God's covenant made with Adam, Abraham is called the covenant of circumcision. We know it as the Abrahamic covenant, but it is one of the few covenants that has been given a title for us in the scriptures. It is the covenant of circumcision. What we have here is Abraham's work in this covenant that he made with God, that God made with him. And at the end of verse 14, here's what God warns. If any male, you or any other male, is not circumcised, he will be what? Cut off from the people of God. Why? Because he will have broken the stipulations of the covenant. God has commanded, this is what you must do in order to receive the blessings of the covenant. If you do not do this, you are cut off from my people. You do not receive the blessings of the covenant. Therefore, if it is possible to break the covenant, when God's commands are not obeyed, then this cannot be a covenant of grace. Because it is possible to be cut off from the covenant. In grace, you can't be cut off. Why? Because you did nothing to earn it. And you did, you can do nothing to repay it. It's a, a covenant of grace, but this is not that. 
if a covenant can be broken because of disobedience, then it can't be grace. If there's a possibility that you could potentially be cut off from blessings and benefits, how could it be grace? I speak now to my Pado Baptist brothers. The language of circumcision is a threat. The language of being cut off is not an accident and it's not a pun uh, on the act of circumcision. Rather, the act of circumcision is a warning that anyone who does not obey God will be cut off from the blessings of the covenant and therefore cut off from God himself. And there is a theological idea that is being developed here. Abraham must be active. He must work. He must be obedient. He must be uh, working in order to receive the benefits of the covenant. There is a works principle present here in this covenant. Does that sound familiar? It should. God's made a covenant promise. Hopefully this makes sense. He's placed a reward in front of or before the one that he is covenanting with. It's right in front of you, namely Abraham. But Abraham, you must do something in order to receive it. You must work in order to receive it. He's been commanded to perform certain works in order to receive the promised rewards before him. I will give this to you if you do this. What does that sound like? Sounds like a covenant of works. Do you remember the covenant of works? This covenant that God made with Abraham is a covenant. is a covenant of works. Not the original covenant of works. It is a covenant of works. What is, I just said, what the original covenant? What is the original covenant of works? Covenant, we know, is, is uh, imposed upon God or opposed by God on, on his creatures, where God makes promises that are dependent upon man's obedience to the commands uh, imposed on him by God. The first covenant of works was found, yes, some of you have said it, in the garden. In the garden of Eden, where God imposed his covenant upon his first man, Adam. God commanded Adam to be fruitful, to, be mul- to, to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it. God commanded Adam to work six days in the garden temple. Go back and listen to those sermons if you don't know what I'm talking about. Expand the garden to the ends of the earth, making all of the world the temple of God. God commanded Adam to rest on the seventh day, just as God rested on the seventh day. God commanded that Adam uh, not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if he did, he would die. But if Adam worked, if Adam obeyed all that God commanded, he would be rewarded for his work with eternal life that was represented on the seventh day. That, that rest of one day would be a rest eternally that Adam would be rewarded with if he obeyed God completely. The Sabbath uh, that he tasted once a week would be the Sabbath eternal that would be his. He would have earned eternal life. Not only for himself, but for all of humanity. This is known as uh, the covenant of works. And, and life was represented in the tree of life. Adam stood as a representative for all of humanity. So he worked. When Adam worked, he worked for not only himself, but all those whom he represented in that work, in that covenant of works. Did Adam keep the covenant of works? No. Adam failed. He failed to keep the commands of God. He fell short of the glory of God. What God was establishing with Abraham was also a covenant of works. It was not the original covenant of works, but it was a covenant of works. How so? The Abrahamic covenant is a covenant of works because Abraham is not without work. He must obey. 
God was not making unconditional promises to Abraham. He has been commanded to leave his country, his kindred, to walk obediently before God and be blameless, to perform circumcision on himself and on every male as a covenant sign of obedience. Listen, is that all that God has required of him? That's a lot. Is there anything else? In chapter 22, he says, now give me your son. Give me your son, the one whom you love, and offer him up as a sacrifice. Abram doesn't have anything to do. And what does God say after Abraham obeys? Go to chapter 22. Listen to God's response in chapter 22. Verse 15, when Abraham obeys and offers up his son. Verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord, are we there? Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord. Listen to what he says. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, you obeyed. He says this. Indeed, I will greatly bless you. See if any of these any of these promises are new. Indeed, I will greatly bless you. And I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand uh, which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Any of that new? He says, now you've fulfilled your part of the covenant. And I will surely bless you as I promised. No, are they new promises? No. God affirms that because Abraham has obeyed the covenant of works, God will not fail to keep his part of the covenant. Now, I'm going to say this, and I want you guys to be very aware of this. We must be careful when using the word grace. Without qualifying what we mean by grace. Does that make sense? A a word that, that... that people, I, and I know what they mean when they say it. So I'm not going to die on this hill, but I want us to be aware of it. When we use words like common grace, brothers and sisters, there's only one kind of grace, and it's salvific. Grace is not common, it's special. God is kind to people in that He allows them to be preserved on this earth. But there is only one kind of grace. And it's the hope, and hopefully it's the grace that all of you have partaken in by believing in Christ. God was, listen, let me explain it to you. God was kind to Adam in the covenant of works. He offered Adam eternal life. But Adam had to work for it. Grace is unmerited. Are you with me? It is not without work. Or Here's another one. God was kind to all mankind in that he will preserve humanity for the sake of the Savior. But man is not saved from eternal wrath of God in the Noahic covenant. Just because you haven't been, we haven't been, uh, haven't experienced another flood, another deluge, doesn't mean you're not saved. It doesn't mean you're saved. Does that make sense? God was kind to Abraham in that he made promises to Abraham, but Abraham was not without a path of obedience that he had to walk in order to receive those promises. The covenants that God made with them, along with the covenants that God made with Moses and David, were all covenants of works. 
I'm going to slow down, that were anticipating the covenant of grace. That were pointing forward towards the covenant of grace. All the previous covenants that came before the covenant of grace, which we'll talk about in a moment, were subservient, submissive to, came under the covenant of grace, pointed to the covenant of grace, which is what? The new covenant. No one was saved by way of these previous covenants. They all anticipated the covenant of grace. They pointed towards the covenant of grace. And they were saved by believing in the promise of the covenant of grace. What is a covenant of grace? It is a covenant promise of God that is purely dependent upon the grace of God, the work of God, and not yours or mine. No work can be done to earn the reward promised in the covenant of grace. No debt can be paid in order to repay what has been given, freely given in the covenant of grace. It is purely a gift from our loving and gracious Father. You can do no thing and you can pay no thing to receive what God gives by grace. To whom this covenant of grace is given, nothing is required. Brothers and sisters, there is only one covenant of grace. What is the covenant of grace? It is that covenant that was promised, and we've talked about it already, in the garden, at the fall of man, in Genesis 3.15, wherein the skull-crushing seed of the woman would come and destroy the works of Satan, reverse the curse of the fall, and restore the glory lost in the garden. The covenant of grace is the new covenant that was inaugurated at the shedding of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary's hill. We have the new covenant as a result of the first covenant, the covenant of redemption. Made between the triune God before the foundation of the world, wherein the Father would give the Son a people as a love gift. And the Son would go and redeem that people with His blood. And the Spirit would empower the Son, the Son incarnate in that work. And we now receive the blessings of the doing and dying and rising of Christ by faith. As was said last week, Christ takes our worst and gives us his best. Now, brothers and sisters, this is much different than what has been presented to us in the covenant of circumcision or the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham has been commanded to perform certain works in order to receive the promises of God. He must leave as he did, walk blameless as he did, circumcise his household as he did, and offer his son as we shall see. This is a covenant of works. But within this covenant, the new covenant is anticipated. How so? In closing, <clears throat> there is a promise of particular, of a particular offspring through whom all the nations will be blessed. There is an anticipation of a blessing that transcends the borders of circumcision. Now we're going to the, the spiritual part. So we have talked about the physical aspect. Now, now, now there is something beyond that. There, there is a, a, a seed through whom all the nations will be blessed. Who else could that be? It is Christ. With this covenant sign of circumcision, the Jews are established as a nation. They were not a nation before this. They are now being distinguished, uh, being marked out as a nation. And the promise that everyone will be blessed through them 
It caused Israel to believe that everyone comes to Israel. You all become like us. You all must be circumcised. You all must follow the law. Walk blameless. But the opposite was true. It is everything breaking out from Israel. Does that make sense? And Israel would give birth to the Messiah. This promised seed would establish a new covenant. A new kingdom inheritance. A new people who belong to that kingdom. Who derived their right to their inheritance. Not through law keeping. Not through circumcision. Not by saying I am a physical descendant of Abraham. But I am a spiritual descendant of Abraham and his seed. Christ Jesus. And as we come to the New Testament. That becomes clearer and clearer. Now for the Jews. Remember we talked about why did Abraham need to be blameless. To walk blameless. Because the Jews. For the Jews. This covenant made with Abraham becomes, this is important for you to write down, it becomes a covenant of guardianship. Abraham must live a certain way before the nations. Why? Because contained within Abraham was the promised blessing for the nations. But if Abraham lived in a certain way that was opposite or contrary to the way that God has called him to live, then what kind of witness would he be to the nations? A poor witness. The Jews, therefore, were given a task for a time. They were to, as, as Jesus says in the New Testament, they were to work in the vineyard, to, to, to till the garden, to tend to the garden, until they were no longer needed. They were to prepare the world for the coming of the Son of God. And with their witness, they were to call people to believe in this seed. And when I say they were no longer needed, meaning now you can come inside. The work has been done. Now come inside and, 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 and take part in all of the work that you have worked over all of these generations. Come and receive the blessing. But rather than, than receive the blessing, they killed the son whom they were pointing towards. They were unfaithful. When he appeared, just like they had done with all the other prophets, like Stephen said, you always kill the prophets. They had a purpose for a time. The Messiah belonged to Israel. But Israel did not necessarily belong to the Messiah. This new covenant is anticipated and even promised in the Abrahamic covenant. But it is not the new covenant. Because the promise of the new covenant is what? What's the promise of the new covenant? What does Jeremiah say the promise of the new covenant is? I will put my spirit within them. I will give them perfect and permanent forgiveness of their sins. I will remember their sins no more. What's the promise of the Abrahamic covenant? Is it forgiveness of sins? No. Is it eternal life? No, it's, it's national Israelite life. They would become a great nation. They would receive the privilege of being the mother of the Messiah. In you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. There was, uh, the reason for this was a matter of, of blood connection. Because they were connected to Abraham bloodwise. But to truly be Israel, you needed to be connected to the Messiah. 
through a spiritual blood connection. You needed to trust in his blood through rebirth, through regeneration of the heart. Not all those who are Israel are Israel, the apostle says. So then I suppose the best way to end our time tonight, uh, this morning, is to ask, what covenant are you in? All men hang on the belt of two men. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. You are either trying and failing to uphold the obedience of the law, or you are trusting in the one who has fully and perfectly obeyed the law on behalf of those who will place their faith in him. You are either under the original covenant of works or by grace you are trusting in the covenant of grace provided for us by the Lord Jesus Christ. And you may say after all of these things, what do I learn as I walk away? I pray that you have a better understanding of the distinction between what you must work for and what you receive by faith. And what Abraham was given in Christ, in, by God was not a grace covenant. It was a work covenant. So at the end of all of this, I pray that now you understand. And that I think is your greatest application, is one of your greatest applications. Now you know. Now you know. Let's pray.